This podcast is in no way affiliated with the Stars Production or Diana Gabaldon. All views expressed are solely our own. Welcome to the Outlander Podcast, where the men are kilted, the women are winsome, and the whiskey is neat. Welcome to episode 196 of the Outlander Podcast. I'm Ginger. And I'm Summer, and we are in love with all things Outlander. This week's episode is brought to you by Bloom That. Now, what can you expect when you order a bouquet from Bloom That? You can expect a handcrafted arrangement, arranged by a designer with beautiful flowers. They're going to be fresh, picked right before you order, so they're going to last a lot longer. So you're going to get value. Um, And they're super convenient. It'll take less than two minutes to order. And what you see on the website is what you're going to get. And just for listeners of the Outlander podcast, they have a special offer. Purchase any bouquet they sell and get a designer vase, which usually costs $15 when you try and add it to your bouquet elsewhere, and handmade caramel treats. This is normally $10, but they are throwing these in for our listeners as well. This is a combined savings of about $25. You can only get this deal if you go to their page, bloomthat.com slash outlander. So go to bloomthat.com slash outlander and find the perfect handcrafted designer flowers. You'll automatically get the free premium designer vase and caramel treats. Again, that's bloomthat.com slash outlander for a premium designed bouquet. Don't wait. This amazing offer won't last and it's only available to our listeners if you go to bloomthat.com slash outlander. You know, I think we're so close to 200 (laughs) that we should be doing a reverse countdown. We should say it's 200 minus four. Exactly. It's 200 minus three. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm like, we're so close. Okay, so... Besides a higher episode count, which we're getting closer, we don't really have any announcements, announcements, but I think we may have something to share before we jump into our read-along. Well, my only announcement for this week is gird your loins, y'all. Yes, but who are we girding our loins with this week? I mean, other than you, Ginger, I always gird my loins with you. Well, that's just called smart preparation. (laughs) I. (laughs) Who is here this week? Do I hear a giggle in the background? (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Hi. We have, (laughs) there's a lot of me trying to prompt and it's not working, so I'll just do it. So we have Lonnie Diane Rich with us this week. And Lonnie, welcome, first of all. Oh, well, thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. And Lonnie, tell us a a little bit about yourself and kind of your new venture. Some of our listeners, hopefully many of our listeners, will recognize your name, your voice, uh, and, and coming soon, your, uh, your analysis from, uh, places that they may have heard you before with Outlander. What, did, what, what are you, who are you and what are your ventures now? Wow. Well, that's, that's a long, uh, a lot of stuff to cover. <laughs> um, I, I'm Lonnie Dinerich, previously of Storywonk. Uh, some of you may remember me from the, uh, Scott and the Sassanac podcast at Storywonk. Uh, Storywonk has now, um, died a, a slow 
death. And so I moved on to uh, to my own media company, which is uh, Chipperish Media. You can find me at chipperish.com. Um, but I could not, I found I could not leave Outlander. Outlander has been such a huge part of my life, not just for the time that I've been podcasting and talking about it, but, you know, for the last, I don't know, 12 years since I started reading the very first book, it has commanded my attention and my imagination, and I have loved it all along. So um, I'm going to be continuing talking about Outlander uh, when season three hits this fall uh, with my daughter, Sarah. We're going to be uh, doing this discussion together, which is going to be really fun and interesting. We're doing a podcast called Sassanax. Uh, but if you go to uh, chipperish.com, if you find me on Twitter at Lonnie Diane Rich or at Chipperish, uh, follow me, find me. And as soon as that, uh, that podcast launches, you will be among the first to know. How she's 18. She's 18, but she's okay. a very, oh, she's, she's I legal. know, she's I know <laughs> she just got a nose ring and she like signed it for herself, which was insane. Uh -oh. I was all ready to sign the paperwork oh. and they were like, uh, no, <laughs> they don't need me anymore. Obsolete. Does she? Uh, yeah, she has. She's read the the first, I think, two. Um, and she's watched the show and, of course, uh, has been talking with me. I mean, I'm a big story nerd and I've been talking to her about stories since she was very, very little. We would go to Disney movies and I'd be like, you know... The princess isn't a really good feminist icon because she really needs like that man to define her and all this kind of stuff. And it used to really annoy her. And then she just sort of like drank the Kool-Aid and now she's really into it. She also um, is studying uh, Celtic folklore. So she's really interested. And, in, you know, when you think about Outlander as a fairy story, you know, that's kind of where the appeal comes for her because she she loves to study these, you know, these ancient Celtic myths. And, uh, and she's really into that. So, so it's going to be fun to have that perspective talking about the TV show because, of course, I'm a TV nerd and I'm a pop culture nerd. And she's got this kind of like folklore background and she's really into the stories that come from that region. So it's kind of exciting. I'm looking forward to it. That does sound like a new addition to the Outlander. And I don't mean by Outlander podcast, our podcast. I mean, yes, podcast <laughs> that podcasts, plural, that follow Outlander, yes. the Outlander Ring podcasts. Uh, that sounds like a nice, uh, nice addition that we haven't had yet. Yeah, it's going to be really fun to kind of have her in there. So we're calling it Sassanax because that's what we both are. And, uh, and we're going to just continue on talking about Outlander. I'm looking forward to it. I'm so excited for it to come back in the fall. So now that she's legal and now that you're having her on your podcast and now that you have your own company, are you paying her? <laughs> well, you know, I've been providing her with a home, you know, for a long time. So I feel like... <laughs> Touche. I feel like perhaps this Touché. kid who needs to go to college <laughs> may just like, you know, other yeah. kids work at the family business, you know? <laughs> That's true. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm sorry. I asked. No, it's You're okay. right. You're right. <laughs> I'll throw You're a few right. bucks There's her away, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> You'll buy her next folklore book. Oh, I certainly will. I bought all the other ones. <laughs> she'll, she'll pay for her stars, oh. her stars uh, subscription. <laughs> so that she can watch it with her. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm years away from being able to watch this show with my eight-year-old. Oh, yeah, no, it takes a little while. And I actually, you know, it's 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 weird because I don't really limit my kids from what they can watch. Basically, since they were little, I'm like, you can watch anything you want, but you have to watch it with me. When they're really young, they had to watch it with me. Um, and you have to talk to me about it. So, you know, and they actually 
have have monitored themselves like they don't really watch they don't they're not into horror they don't want to watch like you know sexy movies or anything like that because they know they've got to discuss it with me (laughs) oh that's brilliant yeah (laughs) well because i mean the thing is like that stuff is out there and you can't really like when your kid's eight years old you know you limit but as they get older you know they're teenagers now like basically the rule is you know you can watch whatever you want but you have to realize that that what you see does not represent reality so don't go in thinking that that's the way the world actually is and you need to be able to discuss i mean i think you need to be able to discuss with with smart people everything that you engage with because the the first part of engaging with a story is is you know kind of absorbing the story itself but then the real value of of fiction and what it does for us as humans is is kind of like the mulling it over the thinking about it the discussion afterward that's where you really kind of dig in and get all the nutrients from whatever, you know, fiction it is that you're engaging with. So for me and with my kids, I've always wanted to to make them not just, you know, passively watch something, but to really actively engage with it because then you get the most out of the the experiences that you that you have. My fear is that my daughter loves to talk to me about things. Mm-hmm. It's and I foster that. I love talking with her and I, I love having the conversations because it makes her think and it makes me think. Mm-hmm. It's it's more that I'm not ready for the conversation <laughs> that she's well, gonna she's bring to me because I know it's coming. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know how to I mean, because I, I know how to discuss these things with adults right. and with people that are on the same level with me, but I'm like, how do I make certain things eight-year-old accessible in a way that I'm comfortable talking about, but that I know that she is not going to then take those things back to her school and have the conversation <laughs> with her eight-year-old friend. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then I get calls from parents and right. teachers. Your well, daughter talked about blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I taught my kids how to curse from like youth because I, I feel very strongly, I believe very strongly in the power of language and that you should know you know, the word, like there shouldn't be words. There are certain words that you never use, like disrespectful words. But as far as like basic cursing and understanding how to curse and also to use it like in in humor, um, I've been teaching them that since they were little. And because I've done that, they have never, they curse less than anybody else I've ever known. They just don't because they use those words when they want to, when it's really called for. But they they really monitor themselves very well. So I don't know if it's, if it's because I just happen to get kids that are smarter than me, which is very, very likely, or if it's just that they like, because they've they've had the freedom, they didn't have to rebel, you know, by going to their friends and, and starting up, you know, uh, talking about this stuff. They talk about it with me. And then usually they're like, oh, okay. It's just another thing for them, you know? Yes. Well, it's funny you bring up about story and accessing story and how it's the mulling over and the engaging with it mm-hmm. that is the the human or, or that, that, in, that engaging, I think, by thinking and thinking harder and analyzing makes you smarter. And uh, one of the things that I saw, that uh, that's what I was saying earlier, the timing is really weird because yesterday, I had seen him before, but yesterday I went to a training uh, again by an a- Edward Tufty. And one of the, he's one of the foremost authorities on information visual, visualization and information design. And he talks about if you got to do a PowerPoint, you know, what are the best practices, you know, death by PowerPoint, all of that. And he thinks by bringing things down to their nuts and bolts, which is respectable, your intent is to try and get through something more quickly to try and break it down. His theory, what he tries to do is relay to his audience that that is actually Mm -hmm. the wrong way to do it. You don't want to dumb it down. And in a way, 
Short phrases and bullet points are dumbing it down. He suggests putting something like if you're going to a meeting and you bring in meeting notes, don't give an agenda with like, write it out. Maybe break it down a little bit, but bring something to the meeting, hand out some paper, and literally, if it's a 30-minute meeting, give them 10 to 15 minutes to read. Don't give it to them before they get there because people forget it. They won't do it. And time is very precious. But if they're coming to a meeting, they're giving you your time. That's your time. So if you give up some of your time to them, you are allowing them. You're respecting their analysis, their ability, ability to analyze. You're respecting their, uh, their time and you're respecting their, their brains. And then once they've given 10 or 15 minutes, whatever you do to them, then you can say, okay, I wanted to bring your attention to the point on page two or whatever. And they're more engaged. They're now knowledgeable and they're going to start asking you smarter questions. And he says, your meetings will be 20% shorter. So the way I'm uh, linking that to what you said, it's that active engaging, that active analyzing and that act of giving your audience or giving the person you're speaking with, interacting with, encouraging that, especially with your daughter, encouraging that, fostering that is not only respecting their intelligence, but also helping develop that analytical skill. Yeah, I think that it really does. And, you know, no matter what it is that you want to talk to your kids about, and of course, you obviously have to keep it age appropriate. I mean, it's it's something that you gradually, you know, fold in as they get older. And as they get, they reach a level of maturity where they can they can handle having those discussions. But generally, I think that um, that overall, you know, we have this, this, you know, I don't even remember who said it, I'll look it up later and, and, and see if I can find it. But this idea that no one ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the public, you know, um, that people have been dumbing things down and have been appealing to the, you know, to the the stupidest people, you know, so that everybody can can come along. But I think that when you talk about something at its highest level, at the highest level that you can reach, you know, then then the people around you rise up to that level, the people who are having these discussions with you. That was something that I learned, you know, while we were doing Story Wonk was that we we didn't want to talk about stories in a way that were were simplified. We wanted to to reach for that complexity. And people really responded to that. And I think it's because people are so much smarter than we than we generally want to give them credit for. And when you're engaging with something like Outlander, which can be, you know, dismissed so easily as like this bodice ripping, time traveling, you know, genre novel or whatever you want to call it, be it, you know, romance or whatever you want to define it as, you know, that's always a way of of kind of saying that it's it's something less than what it is. There is so much within Outlander that gives you so much richness and so many incredible things to be be able to talk about um, and to be able to, you know, criticize and in, in the highest sense of criticism, which includes both, you know, talking about what works, what doesn't work and what does, what's fantastic, you know, um, it, by speaking about it in a way that is is intellectually satisfying and that kind of pulls people in, you know, where they're, they're you know, kind of people, and I don't want to say like come up to your level, but like people will rise to the level of the discourse that is presented to them. And if you present a discourse that has um, intelligence thought behind it and that is is expecting them to think with you um, they do 
You know, I, I've never found anybody too stupid to have any of these conversations. Like people step up and they really are kind of thirsty for conversations that address the depth and the meaning and everything that they engage with. Because we we tend to be a somewhat, you know, passive um, society culturally. We tend to engage with or not engage, just, just passively absorb whatever, you know, entertainment comes our way without really engaging with it. And I think that people are really hungry to have those kinds of conversations. So, I mean, in every setting, you know, whether it's, you know, on the podcast talking about Outlander, whether it's at work, you know, talking with other people in a meeting or whatever. Um, I think that you raise the conversation always by pushing yourself to to do more and to speak of things in, in a more um, in a more intellectual and challenging way. And everybody else steps up with you. You know, I mean, people are, are smarter, I think, than a lot of a lot of people necessarily give them credit for. I agree. And uh, that's, again, freaky. One of the things that Dr. Tufty said yesterday was that, and there have been probably, probably multiple studies, but they did a study where they had uh, teachers go, before they went into a classroom, they would say, oh, well, these children are maybe gifted or, oh, these children are whatever. The teachers would go in and treat them that way. Mm-hmm. And so if they said something like these, this classroom where those students are, are gifted mm-hmm. or they've tested high, whatever, and they go and, sh- and the teacher goes yeah. in with that expectation, but they actually weren't children who had been tested as quote unquote gifted on whatever scale you're using, mm-hmm. but they arose to what she went in there. Oh yeah. No, they always will. They always will. Never, ever, ever underestimate your audience's ability or their intelligence. I fully respect that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and people who engage with Outlander, people who are drawn to Outlander are not simple-minded people. This is a challenging text in a million different ways. From the first page of the first book, it's a challenging text. And uh, and I think that's why people want to engage with it and want to talk about it at a really high level. And so I think it's it's amazing to be able to to, you know, go to these these pop culture, you know, items that people will sometimes dismiss. If it's not literary fiction or art house, you know, films, then people just kind of, you know, turn their nose up at it. But there, there's so much out there. And if you're engaging with some kind of narrative of any kind, video games or comic books or whatever it is that you're into, there's a reason why. There's something that that story is giving you. And taking time to look at it and say, what does this have to offer on, on a bigger level has so much value. So, I mean, I love the fact that, you know, I don't mind that people dismiss Outlander because it means that there's all of this space for us to play in. You know, nobody else is crowding <laughs> us out and we are ha- we have this space to have these discussions. And it's one of the things that I love. I think it's one of the greatest side effects of the podcasting boom is that we have so many podcasts out there that are not presuming stupidity you know, that are talking about things in a way that is interesting and challenging and elevating of the conversation. And I think that it's such it's such an honor and a privilege to be able to kind of be a part of that. I agree. Ever since we have stepped into this, it's it was a big fat, I don't know what the heck I'm doing right? as far as podcasting goes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you learn as you go, you absolutely. Do. But and our, our format developed, just whatever. Everything has developed because we didn't really have a plan except we wanted to start. But yeah, <laughs> it's been an, it's been crazy amazing and, um, and it continues to be so. And so we are also um, very lucky to be in that space. We're, we're very thankful to be in that space. Yeah, well. me too. Eh, it's all right. Uh, all right well you want to yeah well i guess at that point we can move on to our read-along so we will start 
Get comfortable, people. We will start with chapter 48 <laughs> entitled Moment of Grace. So before we get started, I need to read this little disclaimer. So due to, even though this is going to be airing or published much later than we are recording it, I need to do this now. So to keep myself honest, because I will, I will say if it's there or not. So note, due to a crazy schedule and recording chapter discussions out of order, out of necessity, I, Ginger, I only speak for myself, am relying on the chapter summaries produced by a lovely group of ladies at outlanderbookclub.freeforms.org. They have fully attributed their summaries to Diana Gabaldon, author of Voyager, and I am fully attributing my quote-unquote notes to them, specifically Lady Jane. As usual, our listener contributions are credited to their authors, and we will include extemporaneous chatter as well. Of course, as always, and we've got Lani, so there's lots more to chatter about. I have read the books many times, so between my familiarity with them and the summaries of these lovely ladies, let's get the show started. Claire has been on the porpoise for nine days and has finally discovered the source of the contagion. It's a man named Harry, a messmate who had first served the gunroom and then had been transferred to the galley six weeks prior to the typhoid outbreak. Eileen P. writes, herself appears to be referencing history's typhoid Mary when making Howard the source of the typhoid. Both were food handlers who were asymptomatic carriers of typhoid. And I have to admit, I didn't think about that. So that's a, that's a good catch. That's a good, a good recall. Claire wants Harry removed from the kitchen, but the cook will not hear of, quote, a goddamn female's silly notion, unquote. When Elias fails to persuade the cook to see reason, Claire decides to go directly to the top. On her way to speak with the captain, she stops for a moment, transfixed by the sun descending, quote, down into the ocean in a blaze that paved the western sea with gold like the streets of heaven, unquote. This moment of peace is the only respite that she has from the great stress and sorrow she is dealing with on the ship. Quote, for a moment, I lived in the center of the sun, warmed and cleansed, and the smell and sight of sickness fell away. The bitterness lifted my heart. I never looked for it, gave it no name, yet I knew it always when the gift of peace came, unquote. So in general, Claire is a pretty nonsense, per no nonsense person, and Jamie is continually compared with the sun. Do you think that for her, Jamie is not only being her home, in a way, Jamie is uh, somewhat her religion or perhaps part of her personal religion or spirituality? He is definitely what she believes in. Yeah, I think that that actually makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really thought about it that way before, but they are they are the ultimate faith for each other. I mean, I know that, that Jamie is a little more religious, um, a little more Catholic maybe than Claire, um, but they're both they both have a very strong sense of faith, you know, and uh, and we've seen that you know with her in in Dragonfly and Amber when you know they had the baby Faith and and all of that stuff. Um, but it's it's an interesting idea to think that he is at her center the way that for a lot of people, their religious beliefs would be at their center. Like she knows that she believes in him no matter what. And that is the core of her faith. I think that's a really interesting idea. The notes were from the ladies at that forum or the Lady Jane, I should say. But yeah, so how just but the tie in of of whether Jamie was we know her his importance to her and we know her importance mm -hmm. to him. But I had never thought really of 
Jamie as her, I don't want to say personal religion, but Jamie as important as a religion is to someone. I think it's the ultimate thing that she has faith in. Like, you know, if you ask her what she believes in, you know, it's Jamie. I mean, she believes in him enough that after, you know, 20 years being apart, she will travel through time on the on the chance that he might be where she's going. You know, I mean, that's that's a big deal. That is a tremendous leap of faith. And so for her to to do that, I mean, I think it shows that he is absolutely the, the core of her of her belief system. We'll find out much later that faith, now I'm not saying faith in Jamie, although I, I guess I can't can say faith in something or belief in something is something we find out later on, something that helps you travel, not travel through the stones, but get to a place through the stones. Get to a particular place, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, that, uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is the ultimate faith. If, if she didn't mm-hmm. believe in him that much, it was a very good chance she may not have come back to she him. She would have landed somewhere else. Exactly. <laughs> very potentially. Has what do you think, Sam? Has she ever washed his feet? I don't know. Like in the book. I'm just wondering if... Like, has it been outlined? Yeah, uh, like, I don't remember. Yeah, she's, she's doctored her so sure with alcohol and any, any germ-killing thing that might be nearby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. I'm like, because there's so many, like, Jesus allegories yeah. and, and metaphors in these books that I'm just, like, wondering how blatant, if she ever went that blatant. Mm-hmm. Hmm, I don't know. And did, did she ever anoint him with oil? Yeah. I mean, the, what they did the lavender anything. oil after the... Uh, yeah. yeah. So there, there oh, was there some go. of that, but that was a, I think that was a different reference. <laughs> there was, well, yeah. And yeah. feet, feet come up a lot more mm-hmm. in this book, but not. Oh, well, yes, right. they do. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> feet. Oh, Lord, feet. Yeah. We're going to get, oh, yeah. A lot of feet. Uh, okay. So quote, then the light shifted slightly and the moment passed, leaving me as it always did with the lasting echo of its presence. In a reflex of acknowledgement, I crossed myself and went below, my tarnished armor faintly gleaming, unquote. Lisa T. writes, The sun is also a metaphor for Jamie. When Claire sees the horizon as a habitation of joy, it is as though the sun has momentarily connected her to Jamie. She lives in the, quote, center of the sun, warmed and cleansed, the bitterness lifted from my heart, unquote. This is a deeply spiritual moment, like the moments of grace she has experienced while watching over the Blessed Sacraments in Dragonfly and Amber and Outlander. Quote, my tarnished armor faintly gleamed, unquote, reminds me of her blue aura that Maître Raymond sees. She is battling plague. Yes, her armor, her aura is tarnished from the hard work, but it still gleams. And for a brief moment, grace has found Claire. Um, I think that the... Uh the idea of the blue aura, you know, kind of being representative of this this armor for Claire, I think is a really interesting thing because we do get into these these really interesting metaphysical spaces, um, you know, for for a, a woman and a main character who is obviously a scientist. I mean, she's a doctor. This is like you know what she does. Um, but to have these uh, these sort of mystical kind of almost supernatural elements, you know, we have traveling through time, right? So obviously, this whole thing is based on something really super, you know, metaphysical, supernatural. Um, and when we go back to those elements, because the rest of the book is. The rest of the story, I mean, if you forget the traveling through time and, and the stuff with the blue aura, 
like, aside from that, this is historical, it's scientific, it's very, you know, like, grounded in a very, you know, like, reality, um, in a very, like, you know, provable reality, scientific reality. And it's so funny when we when we step out of that into these somewhat mystical places, you know, um, and I, I like the idea of that aura that she had being representative of this, you know, this tough exterior that Claire has, everything that she can go through, the things that she can experience and come out from, you know, come from her ability to put that that tough armor on whenever necessary and to compartmentalize whenever necessary. And I think that's a really neat insight. Yeah, I had never considered that aura kind of as as an armor because we we don't hear about it much. We're, we're She's reminding us of it here, Lisa, but... Yeah, we. I think we hear about. Do we even hear about the aura in book one? I think we don't hear about it till book two. It is in book two. It is. In, it's when she's uh, after she's given birth to Faith, and he steps into the um, the hospital, and uh, and gives her that that weird healing. Yeah. So after, so we don't get it in book one. We get it mentioned in book two, and then mm-hmm. um, well, we're Did going through weird book three, healing. We'll see what comes up here. Weird healing. <laughs> Are we talking about the? The the master Raymond healing oh. is that what we were discussing? What you meant? Yeah, the, that was that was weird. The the the, the master Raymond <laughs> coming in to the thing and like, wait, you mean the reach the reaching grab? Yeah, there's that was not a reaching grab. That was. I'm just saying, there's there's some weird stuff going in. I was whistling through that. I'm like, okay, we'll just we'll just move on. I mean, there was really interesting stuff, and it was it was beautifully descriptive. But I've never really understood exactly what was going on there. It always felt like this weird fever dream, which, let's face it, it may have been. She had a fever. I'm just saying. No one's saying Mm -hmm. he didn't have magic fingers. (laughs) See, that's what I asked. I when we talked about this on on when we did the read along for that chapter, I said I understand she's ill and she's full of you know fever and the bacteria. She's she's yeah, but Mm -hmm. he. She he tells her, and so I'm sure she's in some pain too. But she's like feverish, hallucinating, or she thinks maybe hallucinatory, whatever. But she's he's doing things, and he tells her, "Call your red man." So the only thing that makes me think of is mm-hmm. yes, I understand she just gave birth. She's not feeling sexual at all. But I you can't get away from the fact that he's up there and he's trying to get her to invoke his her yeah. man. He diddled her back to health. Right. Something. It's no, it's yeah, he did. He did. Like that's that's how I've always, always read that. And exactly. it was always weird. And I was always like, okay, you know, like I'm 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 on this ride. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, when you get in on the roller coaster and they put that metal bar down and you're like, I'm here. I'm just I'm gonna ride it through, you know, and it is what it is. But yeah, that was always a little that was always a little strange and, and I've and I was never really I never got a lot of clarity on, on what all that was, but I'm I'm willing to just let it be what it is and move forward. You know, conversation like this, and nobody really wants to say the words. (laughs) And everybody's yeah, because it's all really uncomfortable. Because you're like, you don't want to be the one who sees something there that isn't there and that nobody else sees. You know, but at the same time, uh, you know. So you guys could have said, uh, no, Ginger. (laughs) It wasn't that way. So thank you for having my back, Lonnie. And oh no, I'm with you. Odd too. So I think we're all in the same boat that it's like. Like, I think you put it really well. If I could whistle, I would whistle through that, too. Yeah. Just whistle around, right past it. In the sky. <laughs> so, um, I'll tell oh, you, you goodness. know, Outlander is, 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 Outlander is so many things. You know, it contains multitudes. It's like 
Walt Whitman of literature. It's just, there's so much stuff and it is a different thing. It's prismatic. It becomes a different thing. I mean, even in just the reading that we've done this week, it is a different thing from moment to moment to moment. We have, you know, when we get to that transition of, of, of Claire moving from, you know, jumping off the ship into this like fairy realm, you know, and it's this weird transitional space uh, again, which is, is just a strange thing. And then everything is like a fever dream after that. It's all, it has all this weirdness, you know, and it has amazing things in it. And it's just, I think that's why it's such a rich text, why it's so much fun to dive into this because you just, you never know what's going to happen next. Like everything is on the table at all times, you know? And Voyager is that special, as I say, is that special biscuit of a book. It is 12 different books. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It Well, it is, but Voyager itself out of the whole series Mm -hmm has the most, I won't say magic, although maybe, but has the most like WTF moments. You're like, wait, huh? You yeah. Know what I'm saying that are yeah. not, not in a bad, not in a bad way, just like in a, was that, is that part of this series? Did that just happen? You know what I mean? So Voyager um, stands out to a lot of people as being oddball in a great way. And it keeps you on your toes. So does the most recent book that came out when it became, a oh, spy written in my own heart's blood. When it became a spy novel, I was like, what, huh? <laughs> What just happened? You You never know what Diana Gabaldon is going to do. And whatever criticism you might have for this woman, like her boldness is unparalleled. I have never seen anybody who will just just be like, yeah, you want to go there? I'm going there. Hop in, you know, and she'll just carry (laughs) you along. Um, And I mean, there's she does amazing work and it's interesting and fascinating. And, I, you know, and I'm never going to say it's not weird, but I, I use weird as like a complimentary term you know like I have a lot of students I teach screenwriting and when I have a weird student I'm always like oh my god you're so weird it's so awesome and I always have to explain to them that like weird is great because weird is unexpected and weird keeps you on your toes and it keeps you awake you know when everything is the same thing all over again I mean I mean I'm not going to argue that there aren't there's a serious need for some editorial like on a lot of what Diana Gabaldon does I mean there's there's stuff to talk about there, but but no matter what, like if you're if you're ready to strap into that roller coaster and just just experience the weird, it is a fascinating experience to read a Diana Gabaldon book. You just don't know what it's going to be, and there are like I would say five or six different stories in every you know every book, if not you know forty five. Like every chapter is like some weird digression <laughs> into some strange space. And then you come back and every now and again, you'll kind of like move into the center of what the story was about again. And you'll kind of like catch up with everybody. But it really is. It's like it's like being on the scenic route for an entire, you know, an entire book series. You're just you're always going to go off some weird left turn, you know, and find some kind of old convenience store with a guy there from the 1950s, you know, selling like frescas or whatever. But yeah, it's just it's 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 the strangest series of books and so fascinating and it's always always interesting and I think that's one of the best things that you can say about a piece of art is that you know whatever its issues may be whatever its strengths and weaknesses may be it is always interesting Diana Gabaldon does not generally I think bore you <laughs> I don't know fiery cross took me a real long time to get through yeah. Oh, yeah. But I was some... not bored. But I was not yeah. bored. I just had to set it down and walk away for a while. Well, you have to take a little bit by little bit because it's it's weird. Like there's just weird stuff. But I don't know. I I find it fascinating. I really do. And that actually uh, mirrors what Diana says has said since day one 
about her own books that they got to be word of mouth because it's you cannot classify them. There is fiction is all you get. That's the best you can mm-hmm. do. You cannot because yeah. once you start trying to assign genre to it, you have 30 genre. I mean, it's you can't you can't pin it down. Yeah. No, it is. It's it's, it's crazy. Which makes sense to me when she gets oh my goodness when people try to dismiss it as romance. They're just like, oh, it's just romance. Well, but there's there's also there's no such thing as just romance. Like, you know, I mean, like that is that is something that drives me crazy because, yes, uh, the one thing that this is more than is anything else. And I will tell you, it is a hodgepodge of just about every genre that has ever even considered, you know, existing. It is at its heart a romance. And the fact that we want to, like, say it's not a romance because somehow that makes it more respectable is nonsense. A genre is a genre. Like every genre has value to what it does. And the idea that calling it a romance somehow diminishes what this is. Romance is one of the hardest things to write and to pull off and to write a central romance like Claire and Jamie and at the center of of all of Outlander until like, you know, very recently where we're kind of like going off into diversions the last couple of books. Um, it is always centrally about Jamie and Claire and that makes it a romance. Whatever it is about most, that's what it is. And so it is a romance. It's a lot of other things too, but it is absolutely a romance. And, you know, not to get up on my, you know, soapbox here, but there's nothing wrong with romance. There's nothing, romances are, are no inherent worse, you know, a, a, a thing to spend your time on than any other genre, than literary fiction, than indie art house films. They're not of more value than a romance novel. If it's well done, anything, if it's well done, is well worth your time. And there are lots of great romance writers out there. There are lots of great sci-fi writers out there. There's lots of great people doing lots of great work. But romance is the one that gets denigrated because it's specifically for women. And that's where, like, you know, it it bothers me. And the fact that Diana Gabaldon will not acknowledge it as a romance bothers me because I think that she is feeding into exactly that thing, you know, exactly that that, um, prejudice, which is nonsense and intellectually indefensible. No, I don't disagree because I know that when a lot of people say it's just a romance novel or a romance novel, Mm -hmm. they say it with such derision that it's that it's fluff and not worth anyone's time and that's all it is right and i'm like i've never read a romance novel that was just a romance novel there was always something else going on political intrigue sure time travel yeah i mean that's um, one of the things like a romance novel can can bring in everything else like mystery and everything else it can it can like also accommodate other genres i think more than anything else more than any other genre can um most other genres will bring in a romance you know, secondary plot into their stories, but romance can in, in, like bring in, can invite any other genre in. And so it does have this incredible amount of versatility to it. And yes, are there bad romance novels? Sure. There are bad everything. There's bad literary novels, you know, there's bad, uh, you know, root beer floats. There's uh, everybody can find a way to do everything badly. You know what I'm saying? So like the the idea that, that the fact that there are bad romance novels, meaning that the whole genre is, is bad and wrong, I think is, is something that you know you end up like the person who suffers for snobbery the most is the snob because they don't get to experience some of these like incredible things so and something else that would add to the discussion or I hate to say argument but add definitely adds to the discussion but it's something that I believe Diana acknowledges but is one of the most amazing things and again it's kind of sad that this is even thought of 
to be highlighted. I cannot think of another fictional romantic couple that people have not only followed for so long, but also want to hear about them having sex in their 50s. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, they are a really powerful couple because of the the way that the relationship is written. And this is one of those things, too, where um, one of the things when I talk to romance writers is I tell them to avoid this um, this thing that happens a lot in romance novels, which is I'm hot, you're hot. That's really all that's required. Like, you know, he's really good looking and she's really good looking and maybe she's a vapid narcissist and he's a pathological liar, but it doesn't matter because they're both hot, you know. So um, the thing is that with Jamie and Claire, yes, they're both beautiful, like physically beautiful people. And we've all done the whole run around with Claire and her, you know, mild narcissism. I wouldn't say she's a vapid narcissist. Absolutely not that. But she's, uh, you know, she's she's kind of uh, egoist there. But um, but the fact that they're beautiful is is secondary to who they are as people and who they are as characters. And it's because these two people were absolutely were so born to be together that the universe had to construct a way to throw her 200 years back in time. That's how meant to be they are. So this is, uh, Jamie and Claire are one of the epic, epic couples of all literary history because they were written as these, these two people who absolutely needed to be together. And the writing of them as characters and as human beings supports that. If he was just hot, if that was the only thing about Jamie, the only characteristic about Jamie that you could point out, they wouldn't be this, you know, but it's because of who they are as human people that these people really need to be together. Um, that's what makes this, you know, this pairing so incredibly powerful. So four days after this moment of peace, Elias Pound dies of the typhoid fever in Claire's arms, but not before calling her mother. It is touching that Claire provides him this last moment of comfort. She is disheartened by the surmounting deaths and declines the captain's invitation to dinner that evening. Instead, she goes to a remote corner of the afterdeck next to one of the great guns, leaning her, quote, head against the gun, the polished metal cool under my cheek, unquote. There is no moment of peace in sight. As Claire begins to pound her hand against the rail, quote, in a frenzy of furious rage and grief, unquote, she is addressed by a man she had not seen aboard the ship until then, a Mr. Gray. His hand seizes her wrist while his arm wraps around her waist, pulling her away from the rail. Claire, in all her gracefulness, asks Gray, who the hell are you? He does not reveal his full identity as he gallantly hands her a crumpled handkerchief to dry her eyes. He recognizes her as the, quote, infamous Mrs. Malcolm, whose heroism Captain Leonard has been so strongly praising, unquote. Claire is not flattered by his words, for she does not feel heroic watching men die. So things that work really well in books that I don't think will translate as well <laughs> to screen. Um, when he just announces his name is Gray, I didn't automatically assume it was Lord John Gray. And because oh, you yeah. couldn't see his face and they didn't oh. describe him, he could have just been a dude named Gray. Yeah, but Gabaldon's passion for coincidence. I mean, and this oh, <laughs> this totally. book has no... Like, the second it was... I was like, oh, it's it's absolutely... Because, I mean, what are, what are the chances that this 16-year-old kid that Jamie met in the forest, know. you know, before Culloden is going to be the guy who runs the prison that he's in? And, of course, like, I mean... And, and the thing is, like, you... 
you just have to accept like the the level of coincidence and we're going to hit it you know later on we're going to hit another like really big one later on in this very reading the level of coincidence you just have to say i'm in you just have to take that metal bar down and let the roller coaster just chink 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 because you know what you're in like it's just it's it's crazy the level of coincidence that occurs um on this book. So the second I saw Gray, I was like, of course. Of course it's him. Who <laughs> else is it who else is it gonna be? Exactly. I think that's what and I think Summer too, I think that that she was being like, whenever something happens, you're like, Oh oh yeah, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. Right. <laughs> of course of course it's the dude who used to sew her mother's socks. I mean it's go <laughs> I don't know. Right. It's of all, course, this is the over. ancestor that, of course, we, we go through the stones um, 200 <laughs> years in the past. And I happen to bump into somebody who looks exactly like my husband and happens exactly. to be the ancestor. We were just talking about with the Reverend Wakefield. <laughs> like, it's just like, if you are at this point, if you've gotten to Voyager with Diana Gabaldon and you are not completely at peace with ridiculous coincidence, then I don't even know. Like, I can't even work with you. I don't know. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I agree. Like, if you gotten this far, there would be at least, at least <laughs> yeah. half a page when we would be like, who's this stranger that's keeping her from harming herself? But as soon as we see his face, you're going to be like, oh, look who it is. Because we're going to know. There's going to be no hiding the fact that exactly. this is Lord John Gray. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and, yeah of yeah. course it is. And I love him. So I got no problems with it. Like when, you know, if she brings back a character I hate, then I'm gonna be like, okay, whatever, you know, but uh, but with Lord John Gray, yes, absolutely. Coincidence, this all to hell. Do it. Do it. Because I want that guy. <laughs> well, okay. you're, yeah, you're right. Because it, it's not just all over the series. It's all over Voyager. What the heck? I mean, when we get to Jamaica, I'm not going to spoil it because we, yes. I mean, we all know. We all, we all know. know. Voyager is shameless. In... Oh my gosh! But who's on the island? But oh my gosh! Yeah, exactly. I mean, so yeah, big old, big old coincidence. No, there is so much. Are you, are you referring to her size? No, summer. <laughs> I could. No, 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 I'm referring to like how big the coincidence, like the, the incredible. Like what I'm referring to are the size of Diana Gabaldon's just balls. Like this woman is just she. Exactly. She is one of the boldest. Like I said, this woman is bold. Like there is nothing that, that occurs to her. Like I, I have moments, you know, I write my novels and I constantly question myself and I'm like, I don't know. Is that the right thing? Is that the right thing? Is that the right thing? I don't think Diana Gabaldon has ever questioned anything. She wakes up drunk. You know, I'm not saying she does. I'm just saying like, this is this is my imagination. I'm not saying she's a drinker. I, I can't imagine she can keep up what she does, you know, being a serious drinker. But anyway, but like if this woman rolls out of bed drunk and is like, you know what? Unicorns. It's in the book. Like, it'll happen. Like, she will never, she will never question herself. And the thing is that like, there are drawbacks to that. You know, there are there are things that could probably use a little more editorial and all that kind of stuff. But the, the bonus of that, the bonus of somebody who is so confident and so bold that they will do things that nobody else has just the nerve to do. And I don't think that we could get – I think that, that the weirdness and the, the, the unicorns, you know, although she hasn't done that yet, at least as far as I've read, but I, I wouldn't be surprised um, – <laughs> you know, like the unicorns that happen, the metaphorical unicorns that happen all over her writing is, I, I think, kind of like the cost of admission to the rest of it, you know, where things are unbelievably amazing. You know, it is it is absolutely a ride you just have to tuck in for, you know? Yeah, I like that. I like the metaphorical unicorns because they're... Ev oh, yeah. No, she's she's 100% unicorn. 
<laughs> uh, why do you think she picked Scotland? <laughs> it's the national animal of Scotland. Oh, no. You're right. I forgot about that. About I always thought that was a joke, but that's actually all true. Yeah, no. It is all about the unicorns. So, yeah, I got to tell you, like this woman, there is nothing that if she decides she wants to do something, if she thinks something's a good idea, I don't think she has ever questioned herself ever, you know, which is incredibly bold. And most of us don't have that kind of courage in our own convictions and that sense of ourselves, you know, so <laughs> I respect it. It's crazy. You know, I'll call it out when it's weird, but damn, you know, I mean, I don't think I don't think you can get everything you get from this book without also, like, that's kind of the price you pay for it, that, that you know, it's weird. So now that we know him, Lord John offers Claire brandy. Th that was the first correct thing he did. I'm just kidding. Yes, which shows he absolutely has a good exactly. read on who Claire is, you know. And he applauds her. Give that woman a drink. I'm waiting oh, for her to get, like, an, alcohol, an alcoholic's face. Like a big bulby red nose and like, oh, yeah. There you go. Well, she'd and still be prettier and younger looking than all the other women in Scotland. So, you know. She'd have all exactly. her teeth. So, I mean, that's about all you need. And he applauds her fearless efforts to treat the ship's sick crewmen. They debate about whose responsibility it is to protect the crew from illness. And they both feel obligated to oversee this task. Claire tells him that he does not understand why it is her job to cure the men. But lo and Lord John explains, quote, I do see. I had thought your distress due only to a woman's natural compassion, but I see it as something quite different. I have been a soldier, an officer. I know what it is to hold men's lives in your hand and to lose them. What it comes to, I think, is the knowledge that you are not God and the very real regret that you cannot be, unquote. And um, I don't know if Lonnie has ever heard me say this, but... Just rereading that whew, gave me a little bit of a what I call a tear prick, my little tiny sense in your nose about mm -hmm. uh, just a tingle um, about, <laughs> no, I'm not going to cry. But it was a little bit of a the beginning of a, of, a, of a tear prick. That is the human condition right yeah. there. Yeah. The tear prick is the human condition. That is not a condition I find myself in very often. I think the thing yes. that inspired the tear prick, you know what I love the most about podcasting with you guys is that every now and again, I got to step between you and push you apart. You know? <laughs> Somebody's going to take their earrings off and the hair pulling's going to start. And I'm going to be like, what do I do? <laughs> but yeah, so him saying that, that's, that's, that's difficult. I mean, that's ultimately, I don't think a lot of people, I mean, maybe doctors especially, but I don't think a lot of people actively think that they're God, but it's when you're in a situation where a loved one or a friend or something is, is at death's door and you realize at that moment that you are powerless. That is. Yeah. And the thing that I love about this is that it's something that only a few people can understand. Like most people in their average everyday life don't deal with life and death situations. They don't deal with having to, you know, having to deal with somebody who's going to die, you know, kind of on your watch, you know, I mean, she's the doctor, she's running the show as best she can. And these men are dying on her watch. And he has been a soldier. So he knows. And I like that we instantly have this moment of deep connection, you know, between Lord John and Claire. And Lord John and Claire are a very complicated relationship, you know, as we as we move forward. But we, we open from the very moment that they meet with this deep personal 
connection that that very few people in the world, I think, can understand, can understand feeling responsible for a life that you are powerless to save, you know, and that is a that is a very unusual experience and that they would be able to bond so deeply at that level so immediately in the relationship. It's an incredibly powerful moment. It just makes me think about later chapters when they have that whole comment mm-hmm. when she discovers who he really is and they both kind of say, it's a shame I really liked you when I met you. And I really liked you too. And that just made me sad because they're like, oh, now this is tempered and Mm -hmm. I can't like you anymore. Right, because of jealousy over a man. Please, you know? I mean, first of all, Jamie doesn't swing that way, so it doesn't matter anyway. You know, Lord John is not a threat. I could see Lord John being upset about her because she has the man that he's, you know, spent his whole life in love with. But in the end, you know, Jamie has his choice and everybody has to live with it. And there's no reason why these two have to, you know, pull each other's hair or anything. Why can't they be friends? Why can't they be friends? Claire responds to his comments. Quote, I sighed, feeling some of the tension drain out of me. The cool wind lifted the weight of my hair from my neck and the curling ends drifted across my face, gentle as a touch. Yes, I said, unquote. So on these parting words, they bid each other good night as Lord John is scolded by Jones, the steward, for leaving his quarters. Jones is startled when Claire grabs his sleeve to inquire about Mr. Gray. Quote, Christ, I didn't think he was a ghost, Mum. begging your pardon. Sorry, I did think. Cru- I almost said crumb. Quote, Christ, I did t- I can't get this out. <laughs> Sorry, that's one of my that's one of my phrases. F a monkey, but oh, I'm, I'm stealing that. I'm <laughs> stealing. That. Okay, you you guys, do you guys curse on your podcast you at all? I'm trying to be really clean. No, no, you're fine. <laughs> I'm trying what? not to say bad okay. words. Only on the F word. Almost uh, anything but the F. But no, you can okay, say it. Okay, um, you can say yeah, if exactly. You, she um, likes to put a bicycle horn over it. You'll just edit it out because I'm trying to behave myself. Generally, when I podcast, I try to be you know fairly clean because people let their kids <laughs> listen to me, which I don't know because why you're smart. I that's do why, but. It's funnier because she, she doesn't bite. <laughs> we had people talk to say that they were listening in the car with their kids when we were discussing sexual positions one time. And they're like, I'm sorry, I had to turn it off. And we're like, why would you listen? Oh, yeah. It's Outlander. Everything is mildly inappropriate. Everything in Outlander is inappropriate. Like, you, you know, you have to discuss it. You discuss the material. You know, there we got Master Raymond, you know, diddling Claire in the middle of this hospital, you know, or whatever. And. No, seriously, it, that's that's what happened. So, um, but I mean, there's so much stuff in Outlander that's inappropriate. I felt like a schmo. I felt like a schmo saying so because I was going to look like the sick. No, because that's why I didn't say it. I, oh, I don't know if I said it. I don't know if I said it on our podcast. I think I did. When we do use the F word, I like it. She does this really hilarious bicycle horn noise. Yeah. That, oh, I like it. Well, now I have to curse just so that I can have that. But what you need to do is now it's the perfect rhythm for the word. <laughs> so oh. just imagine the horn going. It's like, oh it, I feel like if I use a curse word, I need to use no, that. Oh, absolutely. Actually, it works for monkey. Too. Wow. No, I like that. Probably three or four in a row. I, I like so. this. I'm learning so much. This is great. <laughs> she had one session that's on our Patreon mm-hmm. account where it was like literally. <laughs> <laughs> every mm-hmm. in a row like it was like 
And then you'd hear like a little freight, a little slip of a word in between, and then it would continue. And I mean, I had tears. Oh my god! Down my face oh lord! Okay, so it basically, don't feel like you have to, you know, hold back. I mean, edit myself. Okay. It, yeah, yeah. I was just curious because I don't know. Like some people yeah. really want to make it clean, but this is Outlander, and like. Uh, the well, the the material you're discussing is not appropriate. Like nothing is appropriate, Outlander. You know, not when you're diddling a woman who just gave birth in in a convent. No. Oh, and that's hardly even the most shocking thing that has ever happened in the course. pages of Outlander. I mean, the, the everything that happens, you know, is 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 shocking. <laughs> well, one of the things that we learned, and I think actually. I believe uh, I, Apple changed the their policy and it was like a year or so ago, but whatever. Yeah. So in the beginning, we were a podcast, right? And we mm-hmm. it, there, we didn't do anything E or anything C. What we did was we would mark an episode as explicit if right. I knew, because I, I edited it, I would hear it and say, okay, this needs to be explicit because of either the content or a word, a language. Mm-hmm. So I would do that. And then we heard... Um, from, and, was, and it's been over a year that they changed their policy. If you have even one episode marked explicit, your entire show is. And I'm your like, entire well, show, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, okay, I give up. Doesn't mean I want to say the F word every other word, but it's just I can't. I, then I'm just not be worry explicit. Right, because to. you can't you monitor to. for that. And and the thing is, like, seriously, like, people who are listening to Outlander podcasts with their kids, my saying <laughs> is not their biggest problem. Oh, my gosh, no. <laughs> you know, like, if you're listening to an Outlander podcast with your kid and you're worried about that kid hearing Lonnie Diane Rich say shit, then, you know, you've got bigger <laughs> fish to fry. Like, and the thing is, like, I'm I'm fine with that. Like, if you want to let your, you know, let your kids listen and all that kind of stuff, that's awesome. But, like, when the source material, like, on, on Buffy stuff, absolutely, I'm not going to swear because Buffy is, yeah. you know, ma- like, basically, I follow whatever the material is. If the material mm-hmm. is, you know, primetime TV, then I'm going to behave like that, you know. And I, and I generally try not to curse anyway because, you know, because I don't want to be the reason that somebody's five-year-old is going, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be that. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think I've got enough karma working against me that I don't really want to be that person. But, but if the material it. itself, if the source material is, you know, on stars. Well, if it's adult in nature, then they're not even, if the source material is adult in nature, it's not accessible generally to the children anyway. So they wouldn't be exactly to the source material, which means they wouldn't, you know, really shouldn't and be if listening you're to listening to, you know, uh, any Outlander podcast in the car <laughs> with your five-year-old, I think that you have made your life choices. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Anything oh, that you yeah. listen to that's, re- that's related to, that's titled and related to a thing or a book or whatever series whose adaptation is on the channel called Stars. You stop right yeah. there. I love Stars. I, I came to Stars for Spartacus, which was called Lady Porn, which yeah. I disagree with, but I understand. Yeah. I, and I know it was hokey, but it was, I loved it. So when I heard that <laughs> this was being adapted in back in 2013 before we started and put on stars, I was like, oh, no mm-hmm. way. They're going to show all the stuff. And they have. They pretty much showed all the stuff. They're going to show. How could you do Outlander? <laughs> you, you can't. CBS can't do Outlander. What are you no, going to do? Like no. Outlander is inappropriate. <laughs> Outlander is. I wouldn't even say it's inappropriate. It's completely oh. appropriate for adult audiences. It's inappropriate for your three-year-old. Exactly. You know, and I mean, I think that that's fine. Like, but every, you know, people who listen to the podcast with their kids, with their little kids, you know, your kid's 10. They already know. <laughs> like, it's done. That ship has sailed, you know. But I mean... <laughs> I don't know, like I just, and but I always feel bad about it, and I, I just wanted to, like, I didn't mean to go on a twenty-minute, you know, divergence here. I know we're running tight, but um, 
But yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I was behaving appropriately for your podcast is basically all that was. Pretty much the only thing that I will try and take out or not take out, but like bleep is the um, is the F word. It's not because I'm against. I say it. You heard me say it. Yes. And I'll leave that in. But well, I'll put the bicorn over it because like Summer said, and maybe only with me or especially with me, it's funny when you hear me go, oh, bleep, bleep. With an yes, <laughs> because it's funny. So, it is. And it then is. people it's wonder funnier what than the heck happened. Exactly. exactly. You know, the thing is, like, I don't want to work blue necessarily, but every now and again, <laughs> the proper word. Like, Jamie and Claire don't have sex. Jamie and Claire. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. That's just like, that's, exactly. you know, you got to use exactly. the language appropriately. Totally. Totally. <laughs> well, they do. I agree. I, I would say I would say they do that. And they also make love. Sometimes it can be extremely oh, gentle, lovely, loving, but yeah. a lot of times well, that love can't be loving. I mean, you can you oh, can no, that's do that. You can do you that know. at the same time. I just think All like Jamie and Claire, they yeah. they don't like that's it. You know, they don't make love. They don't they have don't sex. Mess. You yes. know, they don't they don't make whoopee. They they <laughs> like that's you know, and I think that that should be the way. Boy, I hope you have an outtakes reel for that because that's oh, a fun conversation. You're just this is the best Patreon co- Patreon contribution ever. Thanks, Lonnie. Oh yes, yes. Come to chipperish.com where I don't say name. these things because exactly. it's my business, right? <laughs> <laughs> Try to be professional on my podcast, but yours, I'll come She's in like, and just blah. misbehave all over the place, <laughs> right? Oh my goodness! So, quote, Christ. I did. Th- Sorry, I just, th- I just, the way I phrased it was like I was speaking to Christ. So that's bad, rather than a curse. Hold on, quote. It's a little early. Christ, I did see the <laughs> monkey. Oh my goodness. Wow. You read that line. I can't get it out. Christ, I did think you was a ghost, mum. Begging your pardon. Quote. She is intrigued about the man she has been speaking with and is surprised to learn that he is Lord John Gray, the new governor of Jamaica. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that wasn't really fitting. No, I like it. Well, I also like how many <laughs> levels of discovery there are about John Gray. Like, first, that he's John Gray, the, oh, you know, the governor of Jamaica. Then we're going to discover later that he was, you know, in the in the prison with Jamie and also knows Jamie. Because everybody who's ever existed mm-hmm. in the world that Claire might bump into randomly has, has met Jamie <laughs> at one point or another. And also, you know, that he was the 17-year-old kid who, you know, who attacked them in the middle of the night right before Culloden. Like... It's there's so many levels of discovery and coincidence with Lord John. He's like a little coincidence, you know, Russian doll and nesting doll full of coincidence upon coincidence <laughs> upon coincidence. Yeah. At the end of the scene, Claire stands at the rail, quote, alone for a moment before going below, drawing in deep breaths of the clean, fresh air. It would be a good many hours until dawn. The stars burned bright and clear over my head, and I realized quite suddenly that the moment of grace I had wordlessly prayed for had come after all, unquote. Claire remarks out loud to the sea and sky, quote, you're right. A sunset wouldn't have been enough. Thank you, unquote. This brief exchange is the beginning of Claire and Lord John's emotional attraction to one another. They are birds of a feather who honor their professions with their strong senses of duty. They needed to share her ang- sorry, 
Claire needed to share her anger with someone who understood her frustrations. Gray was at the right place at the right time. Or as Lonnie says, wait, well, I don't even know how you put it in your own words, but another coincidence. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) At the time of their conversation, Claire does not know that Lord John is the new governor, but she could tell he was not a sailor based on his attire, quote, tailored to flatter his slender frame, unquote. It was amusing that Claire was concerned with her appearance upon seeing Grey, making an effort to smooth down her hair and hoping that the shadows hid her face. She normally could care less about her looks. Is she taken by this officer and gentleman? What are your thoughts about this encounter between Claire and Lord John Gray? I think it's a lot to do with societal mirroring. And she didn't feel disheveled until she was Mm. approached by someone who was very well kept. Mm -hmm. And then she was all of a sudden made aware of maybe her her lack of care Mm. in her how she's taking care of herself. I think that, I think that's most of it. When you, mm-hmm. when you come upon somebody who's so much better dressed than you, you kind of look at yourself and go, what am I doing? I, I should have put more thought into this outfit today. Yeah. I think when you've been cleaning diarrhea and vomit and blood for days, like, yeah. <laughs> if you meet anybody who is not also covered in um, diarrhea and vomit and blood, I think maybe you get a little self-conscious. <laughs> oh my gosh. Absolutely. Oh, that what you smell. Yes. <laughs> That's that's the smell of saving lives, asshole. Like that's <laughs> okay. At least she's saving lives. Speaking yes. of saving lives, the people I was around yesterday on the two-hour train down there, the two-hour train back, and the six hours whatever we had in training were not saving lives. People in they were just stinking. People in people on public transit, and I haven't always <laughs> found this to be true. Although, you know, once in a while. Um, but yesterday it was like a whole bunch of all in one day. People think that the people on public transit, at least yesterday in the place I was thought, and people in a somewhat dim training room at a hotel thought that they could go to fart town and get away with it. You don't do that. (laughs) You don't, you go to the bathroom. What what are they supposed to? What are they supposed to do if they can't help it? If you're trapped. Okay. On a train. What if they have a broken sphincter? On a train. It's a. What if their sphincter can't hold it in anymore? On a, they're doing their best, but they can't miss training. On a train, it's a little bit more acceptable because I know you're, you're, it is what it is. We're all stuck. And I think there's a bathroom, but whatever. But you, you walk down the road and you come, I don't know. On a train is iffy. But in a big, huge conference room, you leave and you come back. <laughs> I'm sorry. You are such a prude I'm not a when prude. it comes to farts. I don't want to be in your cloud. It's a fart, dude. It's a bodily, <laughs> it's a bodily function. You can't help most of the time. What, what would be worse if they did get up and in their attempt to get out, let it go right by your face as they walked by? It would have been. Wouldn't that be worse? No, because then you'd be walked, in the class. I was at the back. They to, would have walked to the back of the room. It would have been behind me at least. But I digress. So at the time of their. <laughs> Eileen P. writes, Claire's moment of grace comes as she's feeling defeated while battling the typhoid epidemic. The sight of that beautiful sunset over the ocean reminds Claire that God is there. Claire's heart is lifted by the sight. Unfortunately, her helper, Elias Pound, dies from typhoid. He was the first death of 23 that day. While Claire is making headway preventing new cases, there is little she can do to cure those who are already sick. She gives into despair, hitting the ship's railing, and here a savior arrives in the form of Lord John Gray. It turns out Lord John has come a long way since Ardsmuir. He is now governor of Jamaica. He analyzes Claire's distress succinctly. 
quote, what it comes to, I think, is the knowledge that you are not God, unquote. These are the words Claire needed to hear to release her from her burden. And Joe B. writes, does she realize here the risks to Jamie, especially now he is in official documents in the log? Is she really keeping Jamie away from Lord John or using her efforts on behalf of the Navy as leverage? Either way, in this moment, grace is given and it is sufficient unto the day. And Lisa T. writes, even though it is many hours until dawn and she is a long way from Jamie, the star's faraway suns still burn brightly. Lord John gives Claire absolution, understanding, and a moment of grace. Chapter 49, entitled Land Ho. I mean, Land Ho. <laughs> so Land Ho or Land Ho. <laughs> the smell of land is apparent, and Claire enlists the help of the goat keeper, Annika, in order to help her escape from the porpoise. Maybe there's, maybe you smell like flowers that are growing there or, you know, that kind of stuff. Maybe the, like that. The smell of so, like earth, soil. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe like that earthy kind of. And also I think like when you're on the sea, like the sea has a very strong smell. So anything that is not sea, you know, <laughs> I think brings you back in. So Annika is uh, going to help Claire escape, but they have to keep it a secret. Listener Alina M from Sweden has sent us a special message on how to talk to goats in Swedish. Hi, Ginger and Summer. I love your podcast. Thank you so much for all the time and effort that you put into it. My name is Elina and I live in Stockholm, Sweden. And I was so happy when a Swede appeared in the book, Annika Johansson. However, as a Swede and fellow language enthusiast, I'd like to give you a crash course in speaking to goats in Swedish. I'm not sure if it's the same in all the versions of the book, but in my copy it says that Annika Johansson says komma, 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 dyr get. Now this is the Google Translate version of uh, come, 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 precious goat. It's the wrong conjugation of the verb to come, at komma, and dyr means expensive rather than beautiful or beloved. So correct Swedish would be kom, 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 fin get, which it also says in a Swedish translation of the book. I'm surprised that this made it through to publishing, but I still love Diana's writing. Bye. Hej då. I have Alina in my notes too. She emailed me about this too. Yeah, yeah when we were discussing it. Oh, that's hysterical. <laughs> Pausing only to pick up fresh water at Watling Island, Claire is dismayed when they don't go ashore. Claire has an uncomfortable discussion with Captain Leonard as he admits to knowing her real identity, and he expresses his guilt about recording his suspicions about Jamie in the ship's log. This means that Jamie is in danger of being apprehended and hanged. Racked with guilt, the captain keeps out of Claire's way as the ship makes its way south. But hampered by high winds and a split mainmast, the ship is forced to put in for repair in the North Caicos Islands. The island proved a disappointment to Claire, but Annika sees this as an opportunity and demonstrates to Claire how she can escape using the water vortex in the Mushua Passage. Quote, jump, she said simply. You're crazy, I said in horror. But it work. Water move you. Unquote. Realizing that this may be her only opportunity, Claire says, yeah, I'll try. Unquote. And she jumps. Yeah, I, I love this moment, too. Like, I love Annika. 
Annika is awesome throughout these when she's trying to distract the guy with the goat, you know, to get Claire onto onto land. Um, I think it's really cute, and it is fun to see Claire like her relationships with women. Like aside from Jenny, you know, tend to be somewhat fraught. She she works better with men, I think, generally than she does with women. Um, so it's kind of fun to see her develop this this female friendship that is is sort of based in this sense of adventure. You know, Annika is like, no man, we will get you off this boat. Like I will figure this out. You know, and I kind of love that about her. Um, you know, she's she's really really fun. You know, and uh, and just uh, like a nice you know, side character to have during this time where everything is so sad and so dark and so dreary. It's, it's fun to have Annika there just like, Oh yeah, no, let's do this thing. <laughs> well, I guess when your friends are goats, you get pretty excited about having another lady on board. Oh, sure. Sure. Do I feel bad for the goat with the tick? Yes. First she had the tick pulled out of its ear and then she put alcohol on it. Ow. But one of the things in, in chapter 49, though, that always kind of caught my attention and I haven't been able to let go is Captain Leonard and his guilt. Because here's the thing, like he wrote down Jamie's name in the logbook. And I understand the logbook is like this precious thing and whatever. But she came in, saved lives, you know, helped him out, was pressed into service, you know, all this stuff. And he can't spill a bottle of wine on that particular logbook. That logbook can't just go missing. A page can't just get ripped out and thrown into the fire accidentally. Like, oh, I don't know what happened there. Like, you know, if he feels so bad about it, rip the page out and move on with your life. But yet he's giving her this whole, I feel so guilty and I'm so sorry and I'll write you a letter of recommendation or whatever the equivalent was at that time, you know. And, you know, while at the same time, I'm going to absolutely ensure because of my sense of honor that your husband is, you know, hung as a criminal as soon as he hits land. Like, you know, I mean, I don't know. Like, I understand he's got this sense of integrity as a, a ship's captain, but whatever, dude, you know, she came on and saved like your life and the lives of a bunch of your men and you never would have made it. You would have died out there, you know, on the ocean if it hadn't been for her. So, I mean, I know he's a young kid. He's he's really pretty young and not ready to be a captain. But that's even more of a reason to be like, oh, I guess I must have ripped a page out. Like, you know, who's who can't forgive that of like, what is he, 20, you know, 22, something like that. Um, so that always drove me crazy because I'm like, you know, don't give me your guilt. Don't tell mm -hmm. me how bad you feel on something that you can correct, that you have the power to change it. You know, like that, that whole guilt thing didn't fly for me because it's all about action. You can say whatever you want. People, you know, can believe what you do, you know? Yeah, it would have been real easy to dump the ink over while he was keeping notes in his. Or, like, oh, sure. Like, exactly. Make or a big splotch, like you know? Accidentally on purpose, drop it into a fire. So you keep all the pages in the front and you burn, you burn the page in question plus the end. And then you say, oopsie, I got to start a new log. Exactly. Like, there are so many things that you can do here, you know, and I understand, like, integrity is the stuff you do when no one's watching. But, you know, this is not a huge moral question. It's not like he has a smartphone and the email is sent, you know, and there's nothing he can do. Like, exactly. this is 
a time where, you know, you have plenty of time to consider whether or not you want to enter this information into the record. So, yeah, I I found that to be really, really thin. And I I liked Captain Leonard and I had sympathy for him in a lot of ways. I mean, he was a young kid who was pulled up into this position completely unready for it, you know, and I I completely get that. Like, you know, this, this is a thing that happened to him that he was not prepared for. But at the same time, like, you know, he's not an idiot. He obviously knows he has the power to not have Jamie killed. And yet he's choosing to do that anyway, but telling her how sorry he is, whatever. And actually, that to me speaks of his guilty conscience. And he knows he's mm-hmm. doing it wrong. Because, again, kind of like Summer and I talked about, when Claire first came back and she met Jamie in in uh, Edinburgh and then they went to to Lallybroch for that short little time and then um, they were interrupted by um Marsali? Marsley? Yeah. Or the mm-hmm. other one. Marsley? Okay. So she Marley? came they were interrupted and then she found, you know, she finds out about Leary and all this stuff and she's like, "Ah, you know, Jamie's like, let me explain." And she's like, "No, I'm leaving." Right. She made a big deal about saying I'm leaving and then she leaves and then you know things happen and then they bring her back but someone I talked about a lot about that is that when if someone or if you're at a party even if someone says hello and gets everyone's attention like I'm leaving Mm -hmm. I mean you're trying to draw attention to yourself if you (laughs) truly want to get the heck out of Dodge you do it you leave quietly tell people about it right exactly Exactly. you sneak out the back door Exactly. And that was proven when Claire, you know, she takes off with a horse and or whatever and all that. And then young Ian comes after her and young Ian had said um, that Jamie wanted to come after you, but he uh, or he he was shot. He was going to make make whatever. But um, she she found out that or she basically expressed uh, that she was uh, disappointed that Jamie wasn't coming after her. And mm-hmm. it was in that, in her mind, in her thoughts, in that investigation over her own feelings that someone and I talked about that, oh, well, so she did want him to come get her. She did want to be not, not only rescued, but she well, did want yeah. him to, to put that effort into that. And so she, I mean, she followed through ish, but then she had those kind of nagging thoughts in her mind. It's like, oh my gosh, I did this. I really did this. And he's not coming. Oh my gosh. Well, that's mm-hmm. the thing. If you really want to do something and you don't expect anything for it or related to it, you just do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, if she was really wanting to get the heck back to, um, back to Bree, mm-hmm. go back to the 20th century, she wouldn't have announced it. Exactly. Because she knew Jamie would have stopped her. Yeah. So, yeah. So the fact that he's saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, is he knows very well that he's doing it. He's, he's in the wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. So thank you, Lonnie, so much for joining us. It was, it was a, I almost said it was a tickle. I mean, you do tickle us too, but um, it was a, no, it was so much fun. We love being able to chat Outlander with, first of all, with anybody, but um, with people who like it as much as we do and who have a lot of educated things to say about it. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. It's always fun to hang out with you guys. Um, and I love the podcast. I love the stuff that you do. And uh, so thanks so much for inviting me. It was really fun. Oh, it was absolutely our honor and our pleasure. So if you'd like to check out what Lonnie's doing today, you can find her at chipperish.com. Are you guys only going to be talking about the series, you and your daughter? 
the television series? I think we're only going to be talking about the series. She is uh, doing her senior year of high school and actively in pursuit of college. So her, her spare time is limited. So we're just going to do the series. Perfect. So, and that's just in time to be busy at school and busy with Outlander. So that's right. She'll, uh, so that's great. So look forward this fall to you with your daughter on Sassanac. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. So thank you as always so much for listening. We look forward to our next episode. Thank you to our generous partner, Zencaster, who offers high fidelity podcasting. Check out Zencaster and use coupon code Outlander20, Outlander20, for 20% off three months or 20% off for a year. Connect with us. Visit our website at outlanderpod.com. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash outlanderpod. We'd love for you to join our Facebook community at outlanderpod.com slash group. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at outlanderpod.